You're tuned in to the Kojo Namdi show on WAMU 88.5. Welcome. Earlier this week, we held our latest Kojo in your community event via Zoom. The topic, how are local leaders addressing structural racism? It's part of our Kojo Connect series this month focused on race and social justice. WAMU reporter Jenny Gathright assisted me by moderating and sharing the questions from the attendees. A quick programming note, our next Kojo in your community will be on March 16th and will feature special guest Jose Andres. You can find details at wamu.org slash events, so go online and register now. And a reminder, today's show is pre-taped, so we won't be taking calls during the broadcast. Enjoy. The writer and activist James Baldwin wrote, Not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. The death of George Floyd at the hands of Minneapolis police officers and the protests that followed focused first on the issues in our criminal justice system. But it also became quickly apparent that bias and racism are deeply embedded in all of our institutions. Healthcare, housing, education, transportation, our systems put people of color at a disadvantage, creating disparities in nearly every aspect of personal, public, and social life. Many local lawmakers and officials are proposing ways to change the systems that perpetuate racism, but it's a massive and complex challenge. Joining us now is Delegate Adrienne Jones. She's the Speaker of the Maryland House of Delegates. Madam Speaker, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Also with us is Candace Hollingsworth, National Co-Chair of Our Black Party, the former mayor of the city of Hyattsville, Maryland. Candace Hollingsworth, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Also with us is Dr. Rashawn Ray who is a fellow at the Brookings Institution, professor of sociology, and executive director of the Lab for Applied Social Science Research at the University of Maryland's College Park. Rashan Ray, thank you for joining us. Thank you. I'll start with you. We hear the term structural racism a lot these days. Can you define it? So when we talk about structural racism, it's really the ways that racism permeates our policies, our laws, our rules and the regulations that govern us. One thing that we know from sociologists such as uh, Eduardo Benia Silva, who is a professor at Duke University and the former president of the American Sociological Association, is that we don't need races necessarily in order for systemic racism or structural racism to impact our society. Some of the ways that we've seen this historically and currently, one really good example is redlining. We know that redlining is a system at play that leads to people who live in predominantly black neighborhoods being given less access to resources, whether that be health resources, whether that be work opportunities, whether that be grocery stores. And we've seen the way even that this has played out during COVID-19 with people having less access to be able to, um, to, to get to a hospital. And I think one big point here, we could take cities like Baltimore or Washington DC, and I've done this in my analysis, and take a map say from 2020 or 2010 and overlay it with the map from 1910. And we basically see that black people and white people have lived in similar places and that the income disparities that existed then, then are the same ones that exist today. Candace Hollisworth, you was, as I said earlier, the mayor, you were the mayor of Hyattsville, Maryland. In other words, you were in charge, you were the boss, but were there nevertheless examples of structural racism that you witness and how it affects people in their daily lives, even during your tenure? Oh, absolutely. Um, and and we can't we can't be naive enough to believe that um, just because we have a certain um, leadership of a certain complexion or that because we have um, majority of residents who might be progressive leaning in their politics, you're still talking about a democracy that is representative of the voices of people. And we know that we all um, have, we all carry with us that legacy of our forefathers, whatever that legacy might be. And it shows up in many ways. It shows up in PTA meetings. It shows up in advocacy um, actions. It shows up in opposition to development or support for development. It shows up all around us. Um, and Many times they are the very benign ways or ways that we assume are benign that can actually have a very real impact on a person's life. 
And that's why in elected office, especially when we're talking about the role that local leaders can play in addressing systemic racism, it's really important that as you know, myself now, former elected official, but for those of us who are in positions of power, that we always ask ourselves, will what I'm doing exacerbate a problem even more? And so we have to use, so it's a process of undoing and also a process of making sure that our actions don't end up creating another situation down the line. Speaker Jones, as a society, we're just beginning to discuss the issue of structural racism. But for those who experience this on a daily basis, these issues are not new. What was it like for you? When and how did you become aware of the biases and racism underpinning so many of our institutions? And is that one of the reasons you decided to run for office in the first place? I, <laughs> that's a good question. Um, I've been in um, office over 20 some years, but it became very apparent over the, the years and how we as a, a people, you know, black, brown people, were being treated or not treated. And it wasn't until I had the opportunity to try to do something about it and when I became speaker that um, that was one of the first things I wanted to um, deal with. And that's why um, we had put out um, the uh, racial, you know, black agenda and, and racial and economic justice agenda as a series of bills that address the areas that um, need to be worked on in order to make us uh, more, more fair, no matter what our um, economic status was. Um, we, I just wanted to make sure as a people that we could be successful. How long has this Black agenda been percolating in your head? Um, well, over, over the probably over the years, because growing up, you know, I was in, you know, we all, you know, name calling we received or being left out. I found out, um, and I'll give you a quick example. I worked for Baltimore County for um, a number of years, and I just learned from my former boss, who happened to be white, that, um, <clears throat> that there, I, I was left out of certain meetings that they attended because I wasn't allowed to go. They had these special, you know, retreats that people go to. Uh, it was at um, at a club, uh, like a country club. And I just learned like, a couple of years ago, he shared that with me. He said, I never told you, I didn't want to hurt, you know, that type of thing. I mean, these things were going all, all along. And so, um, and I, Things like that and, you know, name calling and how you couldn't do certain things that has sort of been percolating throughout the years until I got to this point that, okay, you're in a position to do something about it, you know, along with some key people who who also are, you know, bright minds in this area. We're going to get this done and get it done right. Dr. Rashawn Ray, there was a time when Richard Pryor, the late comedian, used to say a crucial question is, how long will this so-and-so go on? Um, what I'd like to talk about is how long it has been going on. We hear about the 1619 Project, but how long, where and how did these underlying structures and systems come to be? I mean, that, that's a great question. And I mean, in the, in the American context, we have to be very clear that our country was founded on racism. Um, Last year, I had the chance to interview Congressman Akeem Jeffries, and he said that America was born with a, with a genetic birth defect on the question of race. I really like how he put that because it suggests the ways that we need to continuously work at it. At the University of Maryland, when I teach courses on race, one of the things that I tell my students is a sentence that's very, very important for how we think about race, that the social construction of race, because when we talk about race and racism, it's oftentimes about the social construction of it, the way that people think that it manifests, the way that people think that it matters for biology and culture and the like. So the social construction of race based on the falsification of the science of race, meaning where it comes from, that if we then justify in our minds that people are biolog biologically or genetically or culturally different, then it justifies the racial gaps that we exist. 
Oh, the social construction of race based on the falsification of the science of race leads to the exploitation of race for economic gains. So we know that when we think historically, and I'll just highlight a few very important points for people, is that of course people know about slavery. And of course people always think about 1619, the 1619 Project um, is a phenomenal place to start. Oftentimes people point out 1865, slavery ends, we have the 13th, 14th, 15th Amendment. One thing that people leave out is what happened in, um, in 1876 and 1877 which was really where we started to see the end of reconstruction. That what happened at that point was that uh, Northerners, um, the part of the union pulled out from the South that essentially put in place Jim Crow laws that started to affect not only the South, but was sent, that sent a ripple throughout the rest of our country. The other major point dealt with what happened at the end of World War II or kind of during World War II, but when the stock market crashed um, in 1929, that President Roosevelt had to do something, a stimulus, if you will, to build back up America as unemployment was going through the roof. Uh, mind you, unemployment, as bad as people say that it was then, there are cities, particularly predominantly Black cities like Detroit and Baltimore, that actually have higher rates of unemployment right now during COVID than people were experiencing during the Great Depression. It's just important to put that in context to how bad things are economically for people right now. But part of what happened at that point is we had a series of New Deal policies that focused on the GI Bill and Social Security. Two quick points there. Social Security left out two occupations. They left out, it left out um, domestic work and farm work. 75% of Black people in the South worked in those occupations. When it came to the GI Bill, you had white veterans and Black veterans, like some of my relatives and ancestors, probably others on here as well, who went to fought in the war, but when they returned, they were given disparate resources. So part of what the GI Bill did was it essentially created the middle class that we know to exist today. Gave people grants to, to go to college, send their children to college, to be able to have grants to uh, put down on homes, to start up businesses, all the things that we say make the middle class today. Black veterans did not receive those funds. So these policies were mandated federally, but implemented locally. This is the reason why we have so many HBCUs to this day that continue to thrive with not a lot of resources. The bottom line is that these policies impacted eight out of 10 American families. So it's not solely about slavery, even though that's where it started in the American context, but there are repeated examples of the way that, uh, the ways that systemic racism continues to impact our society to this day. It's my understanding, Jenny, that we've, we've heard from someone. Yes, we have a question um, from Victoria, who's coming to us from DC. Um, Victoria asks, uh, I feel strongly that we need, we all need to participate in this action, but I sometimes don't know where to start. What can an ordinary citizen do? Well, Candace Hollingsworth, you used to be a mayor, but now you are, quote unquote, an ordinary citizen. <laughs> <laughs> so what advice, what advice would you give to that person? So I think, especially now, um, there's always this urgency around, I got to do something, I got to do something. And, it, and, it, and, and the doing feels like it has to be a production of some sort and that it has to be giving to some external or other party. When in reality, the very world that we live in, for all that is good and for all that is not, is a result of ordinary actions. It's a collection of ordinary actions. And so even an ordinary person for me, I think I like to talk about folks who, um, you know, in our city who want to get involved, at least being civically engaged, start there. Start with knowing who are the folks that are in office right now. Get a sense of what you, what they believe is important. Get your needs and the needs of the folks that you want to advocate on behalf, get those in front of them um, because you are a constituent. And I think we often minimize the power that constituency has. Um, it also means in, um, broadening your knowledge and challenging yourself about the ways that um, even your own bias and racism shows up. Um, at what points are you willing to trade on whiteness? At what points are you willing to accept you know, uh, racism in its, in its smaller ways in order to benefit you and your family? Start there. Those are places that I think are sometimes most important 
because it gets to the heart of attitudes. It gets to the heart of the ways that we behave in society when we're put right next to another person. I have so many examples where there are people that um, will say one thing and do quite another when, they're, when their hand is forced. And I think it's, it's time for folks to show up in the ways that they talk about um, publicly, privately as well. You are the president and co-founder of Our Black Party. What is Our Black Party and what's the idea behind creating this new national party? Sure. So I am um, the one of the founders. There are five of us on the steering committee, um, national co-chair, along with Dr. Wes Bellamy out of Charlottesville, Virginia. And we established Our Black Party in, this, in uh, early summer last year as a way to help advance the Black political agenda. And so we see our our role as being very clear in local, particularly local and state offices, where we're able to provide for um, elected officials and for regular citizens who are interested in seeing policies that support um, what what we're very what we're talking about this evening. Seeing those policies passed at every level of government, um, what we often see and what we often see in communities is that. Black elected officials, any elected officials, honestly, they're afraid to stand up and speak for a Black agenda. And so we're hoping that our Black Party will be an organization that is able to power that, to give folks the gumption that's needed so that we have not only the people and the mandate, but that we're also able to provide the money. We don't want folks to feel like they have to negotiate on the backs of Black folks in order to retain their seats. We want people to see that Black people have a, have a source of power in the political system and that we're ready to wield it, not just for presidential elections. What would be the relationship between our Black Party and the Black agenda that Speaker Jones is advocating? I'm going to ask this to you both, but first I'll start with you, Candace Hollingsworth. Yeah, so um, like Speaker Jones said, she reached out to me in my role as mayor to get um, input on... The black on the black agenda as it was crafted, and our role with our black party is to work. And we're in the process of developing state net state networks across the country, uh, prioritizing the eleven states with the with the highest population of black folks and concentration of black folks in the country. Starting with those eleven states, Maryland is one of them, um, and paying attention to what the needs are for those community members. We cannot assume that those of us who are in you know, a national position are able to talk about, yes, this is what's needed in Maryland. This is what's needed in Mississippi or in Georgia. Mississippians know what Mississippians need. Georgians know what Georgians need. And it's important that we empower residents with the ability to know, okay, what exactly are they saying with this particular legislation? And when people who are bold enough, like Speaker Jones, are able to put forward legislation that we can say, okay, let's get folks to help advocate and push for that because she or he will need to have that support and the manpower behind them to see, I'm not coming by myself. There's a lot of people behind me who support me in doing this and I'm not doing it on an island. I'd like to hear from you on this issue, Speaker Jones. What can a Black party like our Black party do for your Black agenda? Uh, the Black Party was very helpful in, in some of the tenements that's part of this Black agenda. Um, uh, case in point, um, uh, minority women represent less than 5% of board uh, members in the U.S. So we have people who are out there that are uh, will be excellent candidates. And they know a lot of times they had not been reached out to. So we would welcome them. And also when we have nine pieces of legislation that are tied into the agenda, it would be good if they could testify, lend their story. Cause he, you know, it's nothing better than having the individuals that said, you know, this is what I experienced. This is what will be helpful in, in going forward for other people. Um, and cause they would be what I would, characterized as the expert testimony. You know, oftentimes we see hear about that in, in Annapolis and in, in Congress. And I think that um, when I first talked about it, uh, there were a lot of 
individual saying that, you know, wish I had this um, a years ago or when I was going growing up. And now I'm in this place and I wish I had that. This I would have been in an, an another place. So we're, we're going to have these bills that are going to be and it's, you know, be on the website. We can communicate with um, individuals, but it'll be helpful to hear how would it would affect um, directly or persons who've been through um, what some of these bills are trying to re relieve. Nothing is better than having the, the person who's been through it and they can talk firsthand because they've been through. But there's a lot of people out, out there when they have reached out and saying how this, how important it like to be able to see this, you know, because they have not um, heard about this, um, that this happening in the state of Maryland or coming out of Annapolis. So, Jenny Gathright, we have a question. We do. And this kind of goes along with the idea of the National Black Party. This person didn't provide their name, but is wondering uh, the panelists' thoughts on the need to create a National Black Union to truly hold systems accountable for repairing the harm of white supremacy. This person says Democrats, Republicans, the NAACP, etc. are not pushing with the urgency that we need. Our needs are being sidelined again, and they've seen enough talk. Rashan Ray, um, as you answer that question, how have lawmakers and activists tried to address structural racism in the past? And do you see this current moment when we're talking about a black agenda and our black party? Do you see this current moment as different? You know, I, I think this current moment is different. And I think it's different for a couple of reasons. Part of what we saw in 2020 was um, a combination of pandemics really endemics that have been affecting the black community for quite some time. Health disparities, police brutality, um, underemployment. And so obviously they came together to combine to really highlight racial disparities across the board. One of the things that I always talk about is that structural, condition, structural conditions undergird pre-existing health conditions and really undergird racial disparities. Those structural conditions being the way that we think about um, housing, the way that we think about work opportunities, the fact that Black people are overrepresented, not only when it comes to who was fired and let go during COVID, but also individuals who are working frontline jobs and in, in occupations that are hardest hit by COVID-19. And obviously, when we talk about police brutality, the simple stat that Black people are 3.5 times more likely than whites to be killed by police when they're not attacking or have a weapon. So historically, I mean, we know that there have been a lot of pushes for this, right? One big one and one big miss that America made was following the Civil War, where General Sherman came out with Field Order 15 and essentially said, look, we need to make amends and make this right. We need to pay reparations. Black people, free Black people need to receive 40 acres and a mule. That's where that came from. Well, Abraham Lincoln was assassinated. That was pulled back. Not only was it pulled back, but slave owners not only got their land back, but then they got money back for lost wages, for lost property, that property being black people. And what was one of the primary places that engaged in that activity? Washington, D.C. So when we think about this as a whole, part of what it boils down to is what does a black agenda look like? And part of it is what is one of the biggest things that can be done? Well, in our region, not just in Congress, but also in the state of Maryland, with the Harriet Tubman Community Investment Act in the state of Virginia, where the Virginia legislators, uh, legislatures passed uh, a bill requiring universities to grapple and deal with the fact that slaves, that enslaved people were sold, helped build their institutions and were sold to pay for their endowments, similar to Georgetown all the way up to Princeton. Bottom line is this, this is about truth and reconciliation and restitution. And part of thinking about restitution is if we really want to end systemic racism, we have to not only have a serious conversation about reparations, but that that's actually something that we need to implement and pass to deal with the racial gap that exists today. I'll end with this, this, this very, very important stat. In 1860, black people's physical bodies were worth three billion dollars. Just our bodies. We're not talking about the products we produced. We're not talking about any of that. Our physical bodies were worth more than the railroads and the factories put together. We fast forward to today, actually right before COVID because it's gotten worse. But when COVID hit, 
the racial gap in wealth was 10 to one. White people had 10 times the amount of wealth that white people did. And having a college degree, like many of us do on here, didn't do, doesn't do much to deal with it. White, people, white college graduates have seven times more wealth than black college graduates. It's not about hard work. It's not about whether or not you pull yourself up from your bootstraps. It's about the historical and current legacy of systemic racism that plays out and affects all of our lives. Jenny Gathright, any more questions? Yes, we do have one. This one comes from Lois from DC, um, who says, you know, some people suggest that when we do this work, we need to shift away from giving all of it to people of color because placing this responsibility on the shoulders of those who've been victimized is problematic. These people say that white folks need to take this on since they're the source. So Lois wants to know what the panelists' thoughts are on this. Candace Hollingsworth. So that's an interesting question. Um, I appreciate it because I've I've also watched a bit where folks say, you know, get your people. That's usually where people say, you know, those are your folks. You need to take care of your people. Um, and it is true. I do think that when it comes to um, educating yourself on the ways that racism and systemic racism shows up in society and the communities where you live, that's your responsibility. Um, when it comes to finding out what you can do, that's your responsibility. But I do believe very deeply that it is important for Black folks to take the front seat in our political future because there, there, there are limits to progressivism. We've seen it. We see it today where, you know, I, I'll give a quick example. One of the last uh, pieces of legislation that I wanted to pass before I left office was to restrict how high our um, parking citations could um, escalate. So, you know, you get a parking ticket, you forget about it, it can end up being, you know, four times the amount that it was originally supposed to be, right? That's a typical thing that you see. So I wanted to restrict how much it could escalate. And it was so interesting to watch my colleagues who I love and work with and love dearly, um, try to figure out exactly how much we can actually charge someone for a 75 cent violation. And to watch people actually propose, well, maybe we could keep, keep the fee, but let's have people work it off. So we know that there are limits to even the folks who consider themselves the most progressive. And so in that sense, I think it's important for black folks to say, no, this is what we want when it comes to our political future, our political identity, which includes all of the ways that we live, because we know that blackness in itself is political our education, healthcare, where we live, where we work, how we spend our dollars, it's all political. And so it's important for us in that sense to have to um, take the front seat and for others, if you want to be an ally, you want to support those efforts to really listen and follow clear instructions and follow directions and trust the leadership of the folks who are saying what they need. And so I think it's being able to navigate both of those worlds and put ego in, in the appropriate places when necessary. Well, Speaker, Speaker Jones, if you are to make sure that a black agenda passes in the Maryland General Assembly, you are obviously going to need the votes of some of your white colleagues in the General Assembly. How do you go about persuading those white colleagues, especially those who may not have a profound knowledge of black history, that what you are doing and what they need to be doing is in fact the right thing for everybody? Uh, for one thing, that's not education. And the bills that are associated with um, this agenda are all um, sponsored by Black Caucus members. And they're in various committees. And we have somewhat a progressive uh, group that um, I don't think there would be any problem getting these bills passed. Um, we have more, we have a majority um, Democratic House um, and, um, and, I, and they already were asking what they can do or they know someone that this would, you know, would help them. So I had that leverage um, because when we meet, when we meet um, weekly with the 
um, caucus, um, you know, they have their marching orders. So, um, so I have that leverage in terms of that. And so I don't, it won't be, be, be a surprise. Like I said, we already got lined up who the, who the members will be and they are in, you know, in the respective committee. So I think that's, you know, I can convincingly say these bills will pass. Well, I do understand that the legislative process does not necessarily move forward on the basis of education, but on the basis of negotiation. So I do accept that. But, but Jenny Gathright, we have another question. We do. We have a couple follow-up questions um, from folks in the audience about Our Black Party. Arthuretta from Northern Virginia says, thank you, Our Black Party co-founder Candace Hollingsworth. I just joined. How will this party support the current reparation movement? And Tamar from Silver Spring wants to know how they can join the Black the Our Black Party. Yes, so people can certainly, and thank you, Arthuretta, for signing up. You can um, visit us online at www.ourblackparty.org forward slash join. Um, and so thank you for that. And um, when it comes to reparations, we absolutely support um, reparations in, in this country. We are, of course, at this moment, the action item that we have is um, supporting the wonderful Congresswoman in passing H.R. 40. Um, and at the same time, I think there are other areas where we can be powerful that help support reparations movement. And that is um, amplifying the work of economists like Dr. Derek Hamilton um, and Stephanie Kelton, who talk about modern monetary theory and the ways that we can actually finance these types of bold initiatives um, at the federal level that previous conversations have been handcuffed by this, by the conversation of economics and how we pay for it. And so I think when we do both of those things together, it helps make the path towards realizing what reparations can look like a little bit easier. Um, is it a heavy lift? Absolutely. But it's one that we believe is necessary. Um, Rashan Ray, what are your thoughts on creating a separate party as in our Black Party? What might it add to the political landscape? And at the same time, what are some of the challenges? What are some of the challenges it will face? Well, I think it's great. I mean, anything that I think that Candace Hollingsworth is doing and her and her colleagues, I think it's phenomenal in terms of highlighting what the issues are and then figuring out what are some of the policies to address it. You know, oftentimes we have to think when people have been involved in politics and had other roles, they know where the gaps are. Uh, we heard that earlier about a really good example about tickets. I mean, we have to think that Ferguson, um, which of course was the prelude to Michael Brown being killed, was about tickets, was the disparate ways that Black people were being stopped as they rolled through Ferguson, being ticketed to actually pay for some of the things that the municipality needed. And so when we talk about a Black party, when we talk about a Black agenda, it's really needed in the sense that we have to ensure that representation is there. And simply because something is focused on uh, one particular group doesn't mean that other people can join in. For example, I mean, when things are focused on gender disparities, I'm, I'm very supportive and want to play a prominent role. Because one thing I know as a man is that the reason why patriarchy and sexism continues to maintain itself is because of oftentimes the symbolic in real ways that men are able to maintain domination over women. Part of that is recognizing the roles that, that we play in society. And I think that white people in our country have the ability to do that. We have in this moment where people are facing a racial awakening. And part of that racial awakening is what they can do. Part of what they're doing right now is being educated. That's what I call being a racial equity learner. The next step is how do you become an advocate? For most of us, when we get off of an event like this, we're sitting around a table and most of the people sitting around our tables look just like us. And we have to do what my grandfather always taught me to do, which is to, which is to not sit there and allow our silence to be our acceptance. We have to speak up when we see something wrong. We have to say something, partly because the next generation is listening to us. They're watching us. They mimic us. And this is the reason why, why whether we're talking about policing or healthcare, we continuously see racial disparities repeated because we have this narrative in our country about colorblindness that if you simply don't pay attention to it, that means that it's not happening. Well, it is all around us and all of us are impacted by racism. It just depends on which side of the coin we're on, the part where we're marginalized or the part where we're privileged by it. Jenny Gathright, any more questions? Yeah, we have a question from Wendy, um, who's coming from Southeast DC. And Wendy wants to see some real examples of change. So she asks, how can we make real progress combating systemic racism? Our country was founded on a 
on racism and there's a huge amount of power and money and momentum designed to keep it in place. Can you share examples of successes in dismantling systemic racism or efforts underway that can lead to real change? Speaker Jones, that's what the Black Agenda is all about. Can you give some examples of successes? The agenda was, <laughs> we just announced that. So uh, the bills have not been um, signed into law as yet, but I'm very um, I'm sure that they will be. But some of our areas um, have to do with housing and um, uh, getting uh, tax-free savings accounts um, for first, first-time home buyers. These are bills that our caucus members have will, will be introducing. And some of the things that we were asking, um, you know, that is when you know, your listeners can um, uh, chime in because we're looking for um, getting those individuals and people already have been sending in their um, bios to us. Um, and we were following these corporations through the uh, Office of Minority and Small Business Affairs and Commerce on data um, composition of their boards. As it relates to health, um, we have declared racism as a public health crisis. And we're looking to have uh, health equity and bias training for our um, doctors, nurses, et cetera, and that field practitioners in an effort to work to lower um, black maternal mortality rate. Um, so there's a myriad of areas that uh, can benefit the community, but we also need to hear from um, those who say, I may have that skill set because um, we want to make sure that uh, we're not eliminating anyone that, you know, that's the perfect person for in this area. So we're just trying to make sure that the word gets out. Um, and particularly after these bills are, are you know, signed into law um, and this session for we, we end um, and our session ends in um, April. Well, Candace Hollingsworth, Hollingsworth, some people might say, well, back in the 60s, we had the Civil Rights Act, we had the Fair Housing Act, and of course, we had the Voting Rights Act, and that all of those things led to changes. Black voters played a key role in November's election, as well as in the runoff in Georgia that decided the Senate majority. What struck you in this election about the black vote? Um. What struck me most about the black vote this election was how much it was talked about. <laughs> I think let's start there. Um, but in, ter- in what it delivered, um, I was incredibly proud of organizing communities in Georgia and across the country uh, for not just a groundswell of newly registered voters and those who actually you know, went out to vote, but folks that went out to vote in a pandemic stood in lines, you know, and were willing to do and um, trusted a system that we have, we have foolproof of how badly it behaves for Black folks. And yet we still believe that this is a way that we can, that we saw democracy as a tool to get what we needed. And in that case, the thing that we needed was to have Trump out of office. I loved and I was incredibly proud of Um, The way that organized, it wasn't just getting folks to vote, it was also educating folks on the importance of a runoff election. I think so many people expect those numbers to plummet to a degree that um, the incumbent senators would be able to walk back into their seats. And yet, because of not just having folks on the rolls and knowing that they needed to vote, they had the public opinion on their side where folks felt that this was the thing that we needed to do and we had a role to play in it. And so that's the thing that I'm proud of. The thing that I'm looking forward to, however, is where um, we don't have to be in a position where we're trying to decide between folks, between candidates that we didn't necessarily like. Um, I'm looking forward to us being able to be active participants in midterm elections and active participants in the um, presidential primary season as well as some very important and pivotal um, mayoral and gubernatorial races in 2021. 
I think this is a great start and a great opportunity for Black voters to use the momentum of Georgia in the 2020 elections to really demonstrate the power of um, the Black voice, of Black agenda, and Black politics overall. Jenny Gathright, we have another question. Um, yes, we have a question about uh, this new administration that we just voted in. Um, Clark asked, do you think the Biden-Harris administration will be more open to reparations? Uh, Rashawn Ray? I think so. So I think it's a few things going on. Uh, the first thing, and Candace just highlighted, that one thing that we know about President Biden throughout his several decades in office is that he's quite responsive to his, his, his constituents and he realizes who has put him in office. I mean, some of the analysis that I've done, not just about Georgia, but of course that was huge, but Pennsylvania, Michigan, is that black people turned out in droves. And we saw that that democracy was working potentially better than we've ever seen it working. And it, it's interesting to think about how much better it can get. But yeah, I think so. So the first thing we've seen is that Biden has, put to, has assembled the most racially diverse cabinet in American history. That is not by mistake, that's purposeful. Um, it's not just about Vice President Kamala Harris, it's about a series of picks. I mean, once the Department of Justice gets in place, not only is that about race, it's also about gender, it's highly diverse. I mean, we could look at other places from HUD, we could think about education, we could think about the Department of Defense. The list, list could go on and on. The second thing is about his racial equity executive orders, where he's really put that in place. And one thing we know is that VP Harris, when she was a senator, was quite supportive of uh, HR 40 and raising that up on the Senate side that now Senator Cory Booker is doing. And of course, this is happening this week where there is a hearing on HR 40. I was able to submit written testimony for that. And so I do think that there is quite a bit of momentum, particularly in the House of Representatives. I think the votes are basically almost there. We know in the, in the Senate that Democrats control the tiebreaker, of course, having to deal with the filibuster and those sort of things. But I definitely think that Biden uh, will be supportive. And I think it's, in this regard, it's going to primarily come from VP Harris, who's going to push that. I mean, we know that reparations is a big deal. We know that voting is a big deal. We know that criminal justice reform is a big deal. But these are things that people who put Biden in office expect for him to deliver upon. Speaker Jones, uh, we've heard a lot about criminal justice reform in the wake of the killing of George Floyd and many others. What does defunding the police mean to you? And how does your agenda enforce police accountability? In terms of defunding police, that was not part of, you know, the the agenda. Um, because I, um, I think, I don't think people fully understand what that is. And I would say that what we need is um, funding in terms of mental health services, other areas, instead of um, the public having to call the police on some of these cases that these individuals wind up being killed. Um, but in our uh, agenda, um, we, it's just, it just common sense reform. We had uh, uh, over a hundred people who testified a great deal of them at the public hearing, a great deal of them were mothers who have lost sons. But, you know, we also had law enforcement be fair, you know, to get uh, both sides. And um, none of those hearings touched on about um, defunding. But um, it is something, the two bills that we have is, is as it relates to the work group with uh, Police Reform and Accountability Act. And, and one of the first major thing is um, repealing the law enforcement officers bill of rights. Um, but also at the same time, have a, um, a statewide accountability framework for disciplinary process. There are some who want to have the chief doing it. And, and we, you know, we, we didn't want the police policing themselves. And we want to have more open meetings for all our trial boards and including civilian voting members because we want you not just have, again having police policing themselves in the material of the police involved shooting that that also results in death we want independent investigation not you know again them policing themselves banning use of um, chokeholds and neck restraints and banning no knock warrants 
and prohibiting search warrants from being executed without clear and convincing evidence and establishing uh, statewide use of force statutes and penalties for violations of it. These are just some of the key um, highlights, but it's important that this um, does get passed. You know, there are some who, you know, um, aspect of it, they wanted to do another bill, but I think that in looking at that, I think this is the, um, the bill that's going to do what we wanted to achieve as a result of the charge that I had of the work group that, that met this summer. Candace Hollingsworth, where does our Black Party come down on the issue of improving police accountability? So for that, there's, um, hopefully folks are familiar with the BREATHE Act, uh, which is a piece of legislation that is currently being um, proposed by Movement for Black Lives, um, which goes a lot further than the Black to the Future Action Fund, Black Agenda 2020. It goes a bit deeper because it is not just about um, police accountability. It's about reshaping our vision for public safety and public safety becoming a real community responsibility, not in the hands of um, a particular entity that we all know was established for certain reasons many, many, many centuries ago. Or, um, But anyway, so for us, it is about making sure that we underscore in every conversation around the Black agenda and how we build out our Black party in that community self-determination is always a priority, where communities are able to say, this is how we want to be governed and support those communities in that work. Um, and so for us, we do believe that reallocation of resources to the areas where communities need it most. Um, we agree with what uh, Speaker Jones has said about making sure that we are able to um, have multiple lines of support in a community for dealing with a variety of issues and that we don't rely or see law enforcement as the key to that. That we as neighbors, as we, we as public officials, that we are all responsible for the safety of our communities um, and that we take an active role in that. Jenny Gathright, any questions? We have a comment from Francis who says, engaging white people is a distraction. They don't feel it and they don't care. A better way is to connect Black people in the diaspora with continental Black people and form alliances. Um, so Francis is wondering how the panelists respond to that. I'll start with you, Rashawn Ray. I mean, look, I mean, I, I think what part of what happens is people have a lot of frustration and people have a lot of rational collective memories that speak to what racism has done in our country and what it continues to do. Um, I tend to take, take the perspective that uh, that the more that we have bringing people together to try to make the type of change that we see is important. Yes, there were a lot of people, particularly white people who voted for Trump, and there were a large segment of people who stormed the Capitol aiming to maintain white supremacy, but there were also a lot of white people who opposed that. Part of what we need is for them to oftentimes talk to their friends and their family members because we don't sit at tables with them. And so part of that is important that I think that we all have a role to play, but I also understand the importance of continuing to educate and empower black communities. As we think about a movie that just recently came out, Judas and the Black Messiah, part of what made Fred Hampton uh, such a threat is that he was about unity. He was about using, ed using education to unify. And oftentimes that unification becomes quite scary to the status quo and quite frankly, scary to people who want to maintain white supremacy. So I think that we all have a role to play in this process, but I definitely get the perspective that oftentimes uh, we need to continue to empower the people who have been most marginalized in society. Jenny Gathright, we have another question about back solidarity. Yes, we have another um, comment. Uh, someone who didn't give their name says, it seems like if non-Blacks join the Black Party, it will be co-opted again, and the focus will be turned to, quote-unquote, multicultural issues. How will we avoid this in the Black Party? So uh, I'm assuming that question's for me. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think it's important for folks to recognize that we, when we talk about Black agenda or what most people are, are more comfortable saying is a plan for racial equity. <laughs> we are comfortable saying Black agenda. 
because that is what we were established for. Um, and there are other organizations that are established for a purpose of, of you know, advancing progressive policies um, that help you know, a broad swell of people, because as I said on the show before, there is not a there is not a single thing in the Black agenda that does not benefit everyone. Um, and yet we establish, although those organizations exist, we establish our Black Party because we know the limits, as I said before, of progressivism. We know the limits of multiracial coalitions. James Baldwin spoke about it years ago. Stokely Carmichael and, 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 and Charles Hamilton talked about it years ago. We know that these coalitions, when you join a coalition with an, an entity or a group where you are not the predominant, you know, or the priority voice, your priorities and your needs will be swallowed up. And so this organization, while welcoming allies, while needing the support and the fervor of those who are not Black, is Black-led, it's Black-centered, and it's for a Black agenda. And so I think it's important that we acknowledge that that is a core value and that that is part of the mission and why we exist. And I'm afraid that's all the time we have. Dr. Rashan Ray is a fellow at the Brookings Institution, professor of sociology and executive director of the Lab for Applied Social Science Research at the University of Maryland College Park. Rashan Ray, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Candace Hollingsworth is national co-chair of Our Black Party and former mayor of the city of Hyattsville, Maryland. Candace Hollingsworth, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. And Delegate Adrienne Jones is the speaker of the Maryland House of Delegates. Madam Speaker, thank you for joining us. We've been wanting to get you on this program for a long time. <laughs> thank you for having me. Thank you all for joining us. We hope you'll continue to engage with us on this topic via our social media channels. We'd like to say thank you to our wonderful engineers, the Kojo Show team, especially Ingelisa Schroffsdorf and Richard Cunningham, Yanlin Zhang and Marketing and Events, and to the rest of our colleagues at WMU for taking the show on the virtual road. We're especially grateful to WMU's Mana Kashfi and Diane Hockenberry for their support. And thanks to you all for joining us I'm Kojo Nandi. Thanks for listening to The Kojo Namdi Show, and if you're already a member of WAMU 88.5, thank you for your support. If not, it's easy to give online at wamu.org. Just click the Donate button, and thanks.